appreciate that. Well, we are at the time where we take up an offering. The ushers will have envelopes. I believe the ushers do have some envelopes at the ready for those of you who need envelopes. We do have some elders and a deacon ready to take up the offering, which we'll be doing in a few minutes. We're not going to need to do that today. I ask you to sit down. Please don't pass out the envelopes. The elders, we're not going to need you today. In fact, after some review this week, we've got too much in the coffers. The church has given too much. In fact, we have so much that we've actually hired Deacon Jan and Brother Louie to oversee the management of the offerings. And what we do need is 10 more people. Do we have some volunteers to help them out? You're going to be hired. Okay, we've got one. Dylan is one. Tom is going to be one. Daniel at the back. So after we're going to arrange, you're going to be hired on because they need some help to manage the offerings because we simply have way too much. And right now, we just ask you to stop. Please do not give any more. Imagine if that were true. Imagine. Don't, I hope you didn't send in your resignation, Dylan. Okay. Imagine if that were true. Ushers are available with envelopes for those of you who do need them. Again, we do have folks here from other fellowships. And if you, uh, this is God's offering. If you uh, would like us to, if you're presenting your offering and you want us to send it into the, to the office of your choice, please indicate so on the envelope. Or we'd, as we've said at the beginning, we'd be more than happy to, to do that. This is an offering before God in his presence. And we'd be more than happy to honor that. When we began, we talked about making this feast a life-changing experience. Seizing the feast, making this feast extraordinary. Yesterday, we witnessed three folks who this really was a life-changing experience. Brother Dylan, Sister Kathy, and Brother Victor. This feast has been a life-changing experience. Are we re-energized to go home and make a difference? The difference we can make that we've heard throughout this feast can result in others like Victor, Kathy, and Dylan being brought to the covenant. It can result in bridges being built like we have built with our Windsor folks, with uh, Bruce and his wife, Brother Bruce and his wife from Indiana. Feasts, God's holy days, God's way of life can make a difference. Those who are part of the covenant will be on duty helping Christ, as we heard in the opening prayer, when this last great day comes to fruition. As we ready to ourselves this morning to present our offerings to God today, when we were counseling Dylan, Victor, and Kathy, our new brothers and sisters, the last question we asked them was, are you all in? Are you in? If there's a shed of doubt, 
We need to talk. And it's okay to say not yet. But we need to know, are you all in? As we prepare ourselves to present this offering, to leave these premises here later on today, to go back to our homes, to go back to our smaller communities, let's take a look at what it really means to be all in. Let's go to Exodus 35. Exodus 35. You found some humor in how I opened the offertory message today. But there are in fact two examples in Scripture that I was merely relating what actually happened in history, in biblical history. What I was saying was not, I didn't make up off the top of my head. It actually came from the pages of the Bible. Believe it or not, God's people at one point, and on a couple of two occasions, but specifically in this one we're going to go here, we're going to see something interesting here. Exodus 35, verse 20. They're preparing the tabernacle for the first generation of the, Israel, the children of Israel. And verse 20 tells us, And all the congregations, that's Exodus 35, verse 20, All the congregations of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings, nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, and that, it, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. And every man with, was, with whom was found blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, red skins of rams, and badger skins brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. And everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers brought onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. Dropping down to verse 34, and he has put in his heart the ability to teach. We're talking here, uh, we'll go back to 30 so we don't lose track here. Moses said to the children of Israel, see, the Lord has called by name Bezalel the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach. In him and Ahoyaliab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, he has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver, the designer, and the tapestry maker, in blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine linen, and of the weaver, those who's, who do every work and those who design artistic works. And Bezalel and Ahoyalab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. So to this point, we've got folks contributing everything that they have, keeping in mind that they really took it from Egypt. Remember when they left Egypt, God allowed them to raid the Egyptians to bring all this stuff with them. So really, it wasn't theirs to begin with. It was what God allowed them to take from Egypt. 
Now he's asking for it to be offered back to him for the service of his tabernacle. Here's where we want to get to. Verse 2. Then Moses called Bezalel, Bezalel and Ahoyliab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of, of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and, then, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp. Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. In fact, it wasn't sufficient. It was too much. They simply couldn't take any more because the people were so willing with their gifts, with their talents, with the, the, their service to, the, to, to the, the sanctuary, to the tabernacle. It was too much. It was getting out of control, and they had to put a stop to it. Imagine a time when a church will say, we're not going to take up an offering today. We simply, we simply don't know how to spend it. We, we've got everything covered. Our budget is in the black. Uh, we've got everything, everything working. We, we're fulfilling our nonprofit uh, demands of, of spending a minimum of 85% of, of, uh, that's required by the government. If you give any more, we say, we're simply don't know what to do with it. We won't be able to spend it. Imagine, imagine a time to mirror what happened to the children of Israel. Second Chronicles 31. Quickly go there for a second story. We are turning to the time of Hezekiah, which we've covered at various points through the feast, including in the study for the young people, the, the, our youth. We'll just jump right into this as Hezekiah is, is reintroducing the, the worship system to the people of Israel, the people of Judah, sorry, the people of Judah. Verse 3, jumping right into it. The king also appointed, Hezekiah that is, a portion of his possessions for the burnt offerings, for the morning and evening burnt offerings, the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths and the new moons and the set feasts, as it is written in the law of God. Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Again, Pastor Adrian covered that in detail on the, the opening operatory message. As soon as the commandment was circulated, as soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah, who dwelt in the cities of Judah, brought the tithe of oxen and sheep, and also the tithe of the holy things which were consecrated to the Lord their God. They laid in heaps, heaps. God, when God's writers are, are writing, they write specifically, and there are certain words they use. They were in heaps. In the third month, they began laying them in heaps. Verse 7, we're continuing. And they finished in the seventh month. It was just heap upon heap upon heap upon heap. And when Hezekiah and the leaders came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. And Azariah, the chief priest from the house of Zadok, answered him and said, Since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, 
we have had enough to eat and have plenty left. We have had enough to eat and plenty left. We don't know what to do with all of this stuff. There are way too many heaps for us to even figure out what to do. If, we, if the priests eat any more, they will not actually be able to do the work. They will be napping. Continuing. For the Lord has blessed his people, and what is left is this great abundance. Now Hezekiah commanded them to prepare rooms in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them. Then they faithfully brought in the offerings, the tithes, and the dedicated things. Conaniah the Levite had charge of them, and Shimei, his brother, was next. Jehiel, Azaziah, Nahath, Asahel, Jeremoth, Josabad, Eliel, Ismachiah, Mahath, and Benaiah were overseers on the, under the hand of Conaniah and Shimei, his brother, at the commandment of Hezekiah the king and Azariah the ruler of the house of God. Twelve people were hired to manage the offerings of God. You thought I was joking when I said we needed to hire Deacon Jan and Brother Louis and ten more people. That happened. They actually set apart twelve people to manage the heaps and to fill the storehouses and manage their distribution because there was just too much to handle. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to bring this to a close. Pastor Adrian spoke on the first day about thankfulness, about showing through our offerings our thankfulness to God. And the offerings were used by the priesthood so that they could have the ability to preach the word, to preach God's law. So then that would, in turn, benefit the house of Israel. And we see this circular, this circular uh, effect. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where the thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We need to make the big decisions now. We've heard this all feast. Making the big decisions now means laying up your treasures in heaven. And that doesn't mean this is a sales pitch to throw more into the offering basket. We show our thankfulness to God through our, through our offerings. There are only so many ways that we are able to show our thankfulness. And this is one. Our commitment needs to be to, the, to God first and to his community and to his family. And we do that. We make those decisions. We've been hearing this in various ways all feast. And it's true at this time too. It's true on the last great day. It's true as we prepare our offerings. When we choose to put God and his family first, while the going is good, it's easy to do here. We have no, there's no outside effects. There's no stress. There's no work plaguing us down. There's no family members who might be against us. There's no jobs that you may have lost in the, in the interim. It's pretty easy here. It's easy here, and we need to do it here so that when the opportunity, when something presents itself where we have mammon presenting an opportunity to draw our attention away from the treasures of heaven, as we've said all week, we've already made those big decisions. And it will, be, it will not even be a decision. The decision is made today so that we don't have to make it when we're under stress. Make the big decisions now. Choose now to place God and his people first 
in your list of priorities. So that when something comes along to entice you otherwise, there is no choice. You've already made it. We certainly have been blessed this year. We return home with a mission to make a difference in your community that you're a part of. It's been great to be together. It's been great to capture that vision. It's been great to seize the feast, to make this an extraordinary feast that we have made together, that God has blessed us with. But if we go home and we don't make a difference, this will simply have been a vacation. A great one, lots of great memories, but we will have simply been on vacation. We need to go from here and be a, a, be a party of one to get into your community, into your church community, and make a difference. Let them feed off the energy that you have here, that you have been able to, to capture here. We have an opportunity now to give back after experiencing the joys of another festival of God. Another opportunity. Let's remember, as we present our offerings here, that we do it with others in mind. We are not presenting our offerings to get something back from God. We are not presenting our offerings to uh, look good on our tax return at the end of the year. We are presenting our offerings to God so that the word can be preached, so that others can hear this message, so that others God may be calling have an opportunity to be part of a covenant. It provides the priesthood, the priesthood of today, the means by which to care for the flock, which in turn is returned to all of us in teaching and in community, which we take care of together. We take care of our communities together and accept others who are called to the covenant. So thank you for seizing this feast. It has certainly, by all accounts, been extraordinary. Now what are you going to do to keep it going when you return home to your community? We have an opportunity to now take up the offering. We will be accompanied with some offertory music played for us by Sister Erica Dela Cruz. She will be playing Waltz in Beanviner by Chopin.
ask you to bow your heads. Holy Father, we pause before you as your church family here on this last great day, this eighth day of the feast, your last holy day, the last festival day of your plan. We are grateful to be together. We are grateful to have an opportunity to come before you on this your holy high Sabbath day together one final time, one final day to worship you together, to take a drink in of your word, and to offer something back, to have an opportunity to give back to you so that you can help us give back to the world, to give back to others who you are calling to be part of your covenant. In our humble, in our humility, as one community here, we ask you now, we beseech you to accept our offering, to take it from us with the willing hearts that we have given it. We've read examples in, from the pages of your scripture of people who came together with, with willing hearts and made a difference. We ask that you take this, our offerings. We ask you to bless those who have authority over it, bless those who have jurisdiction over it. Give them the equal willing hearts of the people here who have presented this to you. We ask that they guide their decisions with with how decisions are made, with how this is rendered, how this money is is accounted for. We ask that they give them hearts of a steward, servant servant leaders, and hearts of a good steward to take care of this and to do what is right. And we ask you now to, again, to in our, in our humility and our unity here, to accept our offering. And we ask all this in the name of our elder brother and soon coming King Jesus Christ. Amen. Take your hymn books and turn to page number 92, and let's continue the service with Lower Lights on page number 92.
opportunity for some more special music, and then immediately following the special music, we'll have the main message by Pastor Mike James, and then immediately following his main message, I'll be running laps around the building from the energy that I get from him when he speaks. So brethren, we will have some special music. It's entitled, The King of Love, My Shepherd. It'll be brought to us by the Leamington Festival Choir. And then, as I mentioned, we'll have the main message today from a gentleman who comes to us from Washington. And we appreciate your presence here, Pastor Mike James, everything you contribute, and certainly the passion that you bring to us with respect to God's Word. We're very grateful to have you here. That'll be brought to us by Pastor Mike James. So, the King of Love, my shepherd, and then Pastor Mike James.
Okay, thanks to the choir. Thanks to everybody for being here this week. Thanks for all the messages, the fellowship. Uh, I've really enjoyed being here. I came from a very large feast site, and uh, coming here, there's a uh, greater connectedness that I have with uh, everybody in a smaller site like this. So uh, I think this opened up on me, so I've got this back together, and I'll put it back here, and I think, I think I'm okay now. All right. So uh, it's, it's, it's been great to be here, and I just want to thank everybody, everybody that I got to talk to, everybody that I got to meet. And if I didn't get to meet you, there's still a little bit of time, so grab me between services, and uh, let's say hello to each other. But uh, what I'm going to talk about today, of course, is the last great day, and I hope I don't take too much from what Adrian discusses later, but I got to go before you, so I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so what, what really grabbed me when I first started learning God's truth was the truth about this day. When I learned what this day was all about, it blew my mind. It answered questions for me that had been troubling me about God's Word. And I want to talk about a little bit of that today. When we think about the last great day, ladies and gentlemen, we need to understand something about this truth. There aren't any other churches who teach this other than the Churches of God movement. You can go to the Jehovah Witnesses who have some of our truth. They know what happens when you die. They understand about the pagan holidays, etc. But they don't know about the last great day. When you go to the Seventh-day Adventists, they understand the Sabbath. They understand the food laws. But I had a couple Adventists visiting my church for a, a couple years, actually. They would go to their Adventist church in the morning, and then they'd come and visit with us in the afternoon. And they really liked meeting with us and getting to know us, and they enjoyed the, the camaraderie. But one, one day we had a Bible study about the concept of the thousand years in heaven that they have in relation to the last great day, and after that they stopped coming. Now these were, these were very dedicated people to the Word of God. They understood things about the Word of God. They read the Word of God. They studied the Word of God as much as anybody I know. Yet they didn't get the last great day concept. They actually believe they're going to be in heaven for a thousand years. And when you look at your Bible, you might wonder, how can they come up with that? Well, there is a way they can come up with it. For me, it doesn't hold much water when you look at the argument, and I'm not going to get into that today, but this is a gift God has given you if you understand this. There's a reason why everyone doesn't understand. And when you start to look at the different isms and the different beliefs that are out there, and you lay them side by side and you begin to understand them, it's amazing that we do understand this because of all the different roads you can go down when you look at the Bible and how you can manipulate the Scriptures in various ways to come up with various ideas about what this book says. 
But when you come to understand this concept of the last great day, you understand that God really is a God of love. And it's difficult for the other Christian churches to help the world understand that God is a God of love because they don't understand the last great day. And I'll I'll explain what I mean by that. One of the things that used to trouble me as I was 17, 18 years old, and I began to actually read my Bible on a regular basis, were a couple scriptures that I will give to you right now. Let's turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 3. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. And what it says here in 1 Samuel 15, 3 is the following. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Did you hear what I said there? Put to death infants. We're not going to sugarcoat anything. Adrian was talking about the book of Esther. He didn't want to sugarcoat the book of Esther. We're not going to sugarcoat what this says. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one, verse 1, 15, 1 Samuel 15, 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. This isn't Samuel saying it. This isn't Saul saying it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. He says, go and kill man, woman, child, infant. You guys see some little children in here, right? You see some infants in here, right? Kill them? I had had a problem with that. I had a problem with that as I was reading my Bible in those early days to understand, well, I can understand battling another country and fighting against people who may want to kill you. And, you know, I get that. But even these fellas in the Middle East right now who are chopping people's heads off, They lined up soldiers and mowed them down. But they're taking most of the women. They're taking most of the women and making them their wives. And they're keeping their children. For the most part, from what I've read and understood about what's going on there right now. I don't hear them destroying little infants. That's a hard one to take, right? This is a God of love. It's the same God throughout the whole book. So how can He allow the killing of infants? Now one thing you have to recognize is God's ways are beyond our understanding. We are limited by our physical understanding of this world and the physical limitations we have in this physical body that we're in. 
and the limitations we have on our mind and understanding what is going on. But it's very clear from the Bible, as you can understand by reading the book of Job, that His ways are beyond our understanding. We can't totally get it all. Yet we seek to try to understand every facet of this. And we get into arguments because we don't all understand it correctly. We don't all have it understood and realized. And that's okay. It's okay not to understand every nuance and facet of the Bible. What is most important is to understand how to obtain salvation. That is what is most important. That's what you need to worry about in this life. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And many of these questions that we aren't quite grasping, that's okay. You cannot have answers. That's okay not to have all the answers. Worry about what really matters. But lucky for us, God does give us an explanation to some degree with His last great day as to why people may die when they're two years old from some dreaded disease and never have an opportunity to understand Jesus Christ. Why billions of people throughout the world don't understand the truth of Jesus Christ, yet they will have an opportunity. Because most of Christianity, most of Christianity thinks that if you don't get it now, if you don't get Jesus Christ's message now and understand it, then you're doomed. It's over for you. And when you think about that, does that make sense to a God of love? Does that make sense that these people are just wicked? Have you talked to these people? Have you interacted with the outside world? Well, I do. I talk to Buddhists and Hindus. I've talked to Hare Krishnas and tried to understand their perspective. And when I talk to them, I realize they're a child of God. They're trying to understand what it's all about. They've just gone down the wrong road. They didn't know where they needed to go. And that's because God draws people. He draws people to Him, and He's drawing people at different times. And the Bible makes that clear. Notice another Scripture, Deuteronomy 20, another one I had trouble with. Deuteronomy 20, beginning in verse 10. Deuteronomy 20, beginning in verse 10. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves." Similar to what's going on in the Middle East right now. And you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. Verse 15, this is how you are to treat all the cities that are a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. 
the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you, Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Everything that breathes among the people within the land they were going to to take. Everything that breathes, destroy. A little bit different with those a little bit further out. You understand why William Tecumseh Sherman said war is hell. If you're really going to vanquish the opponent, you must vanquish them. Or they will be back, and they will be back, and they will be back. But even the infants and children? Think about that for a minute. But God has a plan. God has a plan. Because when someone dies... They are no longer suffering. They're no longer feeling. They are sleeping. They are merely sleeping. And that is an important truth to understand that when you die, you are sleeping. And who is the Creator? God is the Creator. God is the planner. God is the one who put it all together. So we can't question this plan that He has. There's a reason why it is the way it is. But when we look at this, we know those infants, those children, those women, those men, they will come back to life. And they will have an opportunity to understand the right way to live. And hopefully they are going to follow that right way to live. Now, when you, when you argue this and you look at these Scriptures, there's a lot of argumentation from the atheists, the agnostics, against Christianity. When they look at these Scriptures, they say, I can't believe in a God like that. I can't believe in a God that will put infant children to death. How do you respond to that? Well, the evangelicals and most of Christianity don't have a very good response. Let me give you one of their responses. You tell me if this is a good response to you, but first let me read you a quote from those who don't believe in what we believe, don't understand what we understand. When you read those Scriptures, I can see you going down that path. Listen to what George Smith says, an atheist. The Old Testament God garnered an impressive list of atrocities. Jehovah Himself was fond of directly exterminating large numbers of people. Now, if you're just reading the Bible, if you aren't studying it and putting it all together, you could come up with this impression of the Old Testament God. You definitely could. Many of the Muslims out there will tell us, your God is the same as what we're doing over here in the Middle East right now. And they will cite those Scriptures. But there's more to the Bible than just those Scriptures. This is a total package you have to read from beginning to end and place Scripture upon Scripture to understand the whole picture. It's like a puzzle. It's not just easy to understand. 
Why isn't it easy, you may say? That's an answer that God will give us someday. But by it not being easy, folks, you have to go through things to continue to follow that path. You have to experience ridicule. You have to experience questions. You have to experience doubt at times. And still go through that to come out on the other end. There's a process being worked out here in your minds. God needs to work you because He's got big things for you. And without work, you don't get results. And this comes with understanding His truth also. I'm going to read you a quote by a fellow named Norman Giesler. He's the president of the Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. This guy is a big gun in the evangelical community. If you're looking for someone to be an apologist for conservative evangelical doctrine, it's Norman Giesler. So how does he answer the question I just brought to you is, well, why did God kill these infants? So here's Norman Giesler's answer to that question. Here's how he answers it. The destruction of their nation, the Amalekites, was necessitated by the gravity of their sin. They wanted to wipe out every last one of the Israelites from the face of the earth. Okay, I I can hear that argument. We were talking a little bit about how war was back then. Okay? But infants? How do you answer the question of infants, Mr. Giesler? He has an answer. But listen to his answer. Understand who he is also. He's a man who is going to answer questions for most evangelicals in the United States. They would go to this man to answer a question like this. And I want you to listen to what his answer is. This is an intelligent man. He understands the Bible, most of the Bible, better than me or any elder in here. He gets to study it all day, every day. That's his job. We have other jobs. This information was given to me, folks. I didn't get it or have a great intellectual capacity to understand it. It was given to me. Listen to what Giesler says now about the question of the infants. Let's keep in mind that technically nobody is truly innocent. The Bible says in Psalm 51 that we're all born in sin. That is, with the propensity to rebel and commit wrongdoing. Now, just for, just for kicks... Turn over to Psalm 51, just for kicks. Let's uh, let's look at his scriptural reference for a moment. He says, let's keep in mind, technically nobody is truly innocent. So he's talking about infants right now, that infants aren't truly innocent. Uh, Just look around at the infants in the room, okay, as we look at this. Just want you to take a look. There's a few out there. Okay, I'm looking at one back there. She looks pretty innocent to me. 
Okay. <laughs> What's her name, Zion? Shiloh. Shiloh looks very innocent to me. I, I just don't see sin permeating through her. Uh, that's just me. Okay. Now, I know that once we're born and we start our life, that we're going towards sin, okay? But when I look at a baby who can't even speak, you know, I have issues with that. I have issues with Augustine's idea that you're born sinful, okay? Is that what the psalm is saying here in Psalm 51? Focus in here on verse 5 of Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, your, your translation may say it a little bit differently, but you know what some Scriptures are offered in the margin for this Scripture? Some Scriptures that are offered are back in Leviticus where it talks about when a woman has a baby and all the blood that's associated with that. There are some who look at this Scripture and say, the sinfulness of birth is that once a woman had that baby in the Old Testament law without the sanitary conditions we have today, that she was unclean for a while. That's in the law of God. So does the sin here have to do with that? I throw that out there because there are different ideas about this Scripture. But let's, let's go along with the idea that you know, we're all going to be sinners someday. You know, the only one who didn't sin was Jesus Christ. Okay, I get that argument. But listen to what he says further. An atheist once brought up this issue in a debate, and I responded by saying, God created life and He has the right to take it. Now, I can, I can accept his view on that, but do you think that attitude is going to work with everybody in the world? that God has the right to take any life He wants to take because He created it. Just, just leaves me wanting more. In fact, he says, we tend to forget that God takes the life of every human being. It's called death. God's action against the Malachite children was an act of mercy. Now, how's that an act of mercy? Here's what Giesler says. According to the Bible, his quote, according to the Bible, every child who dies before the age of accountability goes to heaven to spend eternity in the presence of God. Wow, is that in your Bible? Has anybody seen that in their Bible? According to the Bible, this is the top man and an evangelical, conservative evangelical college in the United States, he's written books, he's been quoted in numerous other books, he's a top man. He's up there at the top of knowing the Bible. And listen to what he says. I want you to understand this guy who studies his Bible more than me. What he says his Bible says. So you can understand, there is deception in this world. Don't ever forget there's a deceiver in this world. And he knows this Bible backwards, forwards, left, right, up, and down. He knows it better than we do. 
What happened when Jesus was encountering the demons? They knew the Scripture. Why was Jesus quoting Scripture to Satan when He was being tempted of Satan? Because He knew Satan knew the Scripture. And He knew that's the only way to get past Satan. According to the Bible, every child who dies before the age of accountability goes to heaven to spend eternity in the presence of God. Now listen to this. The quote continues. Now if they had continued to live in that horrible society past the age of accountability, they undoubtedly would have become corrupted and thereby lost forever. Lost forever. If they continued to live as an Amalekite, they would have been lost forever. No chance for salvation. Wicked people, they believe. These people are just wicked. There's nothing we can do about it. Some people are just wicked people. I saw one of those Muslims who may have chopped somebody's head off playing with a little little kid. Holding him, playing around with him. Like he loved that little kid. I'm sure that he does. Yet he went out and locked people's heads off. Yet he went out and machine gunned people who were defenseless. These people's minds have been screwed up. They've been twisted. Their minds have been twisted. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, but it can be wasted. This world can waste your mind, destroy your mind, take it down into the gutter, and have you do things that are atrocities. Do things and believe things that are ridiculous. Yet you will believe in your heart that you are doing the right thing. These people are committed, folks. They believe what they're doing. They're not playing around. They think it's real, it's right. And of course, you think you're real and you're right. And there we go, okay? There we go into this world. Let's get back to Mr. Giesler. So you know what? He doesn't offer a scripture yet for this quote that the Bible says every child who dies before the age of accountability goes to heaven. He hasn't offered me a scripture yet, but he says the Bible says that. Now, here he gets to his scripture. He gets to his scripture. Isaiah 7.16 talks about an age before a child is morally accountable, before the child knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Now, Isaiah 16, let's take a look at it. Isaiah 7, 16. Isaiah 7, 16. Here's what it says, Isaiah 7, 16. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Then the child, after he knows the wrong from the right, uh, he no longer can get to heaven uh, on his own. Okay, I don't see that there, right? It just says that before he knows wrong from right, da-da-da-da-da-da. But there's nothing in there 
about before a child reaches an understanding of wrong and right, that he's going to heaven, right? That's not there. Nobody sees that, right? So here's what Mr. Giesler does. He gives you another Scripture to relate to this Scripture. And we do that too, so let's, let's take a look at what he says. So he also says this. He then says this. Right after this Isaiah 7:16 verse, he says this. King David spoke of going to be with his son who died at birth. So he's saying, connect this with Isaiah 7:16. King David spoke of going to be with his son who died at birth. Yes, David's son did die at birth. Let's take a look at that scripture. The interesting thing is this, though. In this quote, he doesn't offer where in the Bible this is. Interesting, he doesn't offer where this is about David. So I looked it up, okay? So I looked it up in 2 Samuel 12, 2 Samuel 12 and verse 23. Here's where David says he wants to be with his child. But once again, let me ask you the question. Does it tell you where the child is? 2 Samuel 12 and verse 23. But now that he is dead, speaking of his son, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So wherever this child is, David knows, because he knows God's Word, he knows he's going to be with that child someday. But he doesn't say he's going to heaven, does he? No, he doesn't. Where does the New Testament say David is? You guys know the answer. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we'll begin in verse 29 of Acts 2. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. Drop down to verse 34 of the same chapter. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. David did not ascend to heaven. Very clear in your Bible. Yet Norman Giesler believes David is in heaven with his dead son. But the Bible that Norman Giesler teaches from, has studied, has read says the opposite of what Norman Giesler says. The Bible says the kingdom of God will be on earth. Seventh-day Adventists say the kingdom is in heaven for a thousand years. How is it that these people who study their Bible, they read their Bible, they probably read it more than some of us. I'll bet you they do. Yet they have these ideas that when you look at it, it's like, wait a minute. It says David is not in heaven. This guy's the top gun. He's the top gun of the evangelicals in the United States. And he says David is in heaven with his son. The Bible says it. 
And most people see the, the titles at the end of his name, PhD, MA, whatever they are, and they, they respect his position and listen to what he says is truth rather than opening up their Bibles and looking for themselves. One more point with Mr. Giesler here. Jesus said, let the little... So here's the third point He makes to try to get you to understand why little children are in heaven when they die before the age of accountability. Jesus said, let the little children come to Me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, which indicates they will go to heaven. Then he says this. I like this one. There's a considerable amount of other scriptural support for this position as well. Yet in this interview, he did not provide any other scriptural support than what I just read to you. That was all the scriptural support he had was Isaiah 7.16. He mentions David saying he wanted to be with his son, yet he didn't give us that Scripture, because when you go to that Scripture, it says nothing about the son being in heaven or David being in heaven. But then he says there's much Scriptural support for this position as well. No, there isn't. There isn't. There isn't Scriptural support for going to heaven. The Bible's so clear in John 3.13. No one has ascended to heaven but He that came down from heaven. That's pretty plain to me. And so when we look at this subject of the last great day, and you talk to somebody about it, and you think it makes sense, they just don't get it. They say, oh, that's revelation. You can't... Yeah, you know, everything's going different in Revel. You can't uh, put that in together with Matthew 11 and 12. You know, just uh, that doesn't make sense. Why doesn't it make sense? God has a plan. Not everyone's going to get it now. Whether you think they are or not, not everybody's going to get it now. For a reason. I don't have all the nuances of that reason. I've got inklings to it. But not everybody gets it now, folks. But lucky for us, there is the last great day. One more quote from J.P. Moreland, Ph.D., Talbot School of Theology professor, speaking about one of the most more important Scriptures to this understanding of the last great day, Matthew 11, 20-24. I'm going to give you a different twist on it in a minute. But notice how Mr. Moreland looks at Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. Here's what he says about it. Different degrees of suffering and punishment in hell, in reference to Matthew 11, 20 through 24. There will be degrees of separation, isolation, and emptiness in hell. To think that a person could go through their whole life constantly ignoring Him, speaking of Jesus, saying, I couldn't care less about you what, what you put here for me to do. I couldn't care less about your values or your son's death for me. I'm going to ignore all of that. 
That's the ultimate sin according to Mr. Moreland. Mr. Moreland thinks, hey, if you're living now and you've heard of Jesus Christ and you don't want to study Jesus, you don't want to learn about Jesus, it's on you. It's on you to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not into this Jesus thing. That, that you should be damned for that. You should go to hell for that. You should be burned because you're saying, I don't want to learn about this Jesus stuff. Is that love? Is that love? What is love? 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering. Love makes, makes no record of wrongs. That's what love is. Love isn't, love isn't, you don't want to listen to me when you've got these millions of other roads you could be going down in this world, all these other isms and ideas and religions and beliefs and philosophies in this world, and you don't want to believe mine because somebody told you, look at that Old Testament God. He kills little babies. And you hear that once or twice, that might be enough for you to say, wow, there, it, it is there, it is in the Bible. I'm not into that, God. You may not want to look any more in the Bible because it is a thick book. It takes time to get through it. It's not easy to understand it. Why not look into Buddhism? Why not look into Hinduism? Or Islam? Why not look into these other things out there? Because you know what? They're all out there. They're pulling, twisting people towards them. Because there's a deceiver, a powerful agent in the world who's working you, me, and everybody. And he's there for a reason. He's there for a reason. I don't have all the answers to God's plan. Nobody does. But it is evident to me in Scripture what the last great day is all about. We don't have the full puzzle all put together nice and neat, but we have enough of it to know what this day is about. And what it's about is awesome. It's awe-inspiring that God is a God of love. Now, let's put some of the pieces together in the remainder of my time with you. We won't address everything. This is a vast subject. It takes time to get through this. But let's put a few of the pieces together. Let's establish certain facts. Revelation 12 and verse 9. Revelation 12 and verse 9. Don't ever forget this point. Revelation 12 and verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole, the whole, the whole world astray. Not just Muslims, not just Hindus, but even Christians are led astray by, by, by Satan. He leads the whole world astray. If you don't understand that point it becomes very difficult to understand the last great day. Mark 4 and verse 11. 
Mark 4 and verse 11. Mark 4 and verse 11. Mark 4 and verse 11. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Well, folks, isn't that the point? Don't we want them to turn and be forgiven? Of course we do. And God says He wants to save all, but He's doing it His way. Don't worry about why God's doing it His way. Just know He's doing it His way. Now, we can't get into all the nuances of details around this Scripture because I'm giving an overview here, but you can get my email. We can talk more. But let's move on now. What I'm trying to establish here is that there is deception and there are certain Scriptures that talk about the fact some people aren't going to get this. Notice another one here, Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. This is for Mr. Giesler. I'd like to let him know about this one if I ever got into a debate with him. Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. And I know Adrian has some ideas about, let's take this stuff out there. This is one topic we got to take out there. Because we are so different on this particular topic than everybody else. we got to know this topic down. we got to have this down. Because this is unique about us. This belief in the last great day. You've got to understand this left, right, up, down, all around. And understand the arguments that are going to come against you on this topic. One of them is, oh, the book of Revelation is, is chronologically not exact. That is true to a point. But there is chronology within Revelation also. Another, that's for a Bible study someday. We're giving the overview today. Acts 1 and verse 15. Acts 1 and 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Okay, let, let's think about that a minute. Jesus has died. They're among the believers, the, the, the real diehards that really believed in Jesus. And it says there's 120 of them after Jesus' death. There's 120 true believers after Jesus' death. Just let that percolate in your mind a minute. Who, who would be the best evangelist? Who would be the best prophet? Who would make the best speaker in regard to the Bible truth? Jesus Christ, right? Who's going to be better than Jesus? But your Bible says... Only 120 really got it once he was done. Now, there were probably other people that thought he was something, but I'm just going to take that for, for what it's saying. 120? He was only able to convince 120 people, and he's going to tell people the best of anybody. Folks, 
it's not about right now, as many evangelicals believe. Don't get me wrong. We need to take this Word to everyone we can. Every time we can. That's part of the process. Don't sit at home with your feet up on the uh, coffee table expecting Adrian and Murray and others to do this work for you. They don't know the people you know. They don't interact with the people you interact with. You have better rapport and a better relationship with those people. They're there for you to connect with, with what you believe, however you can do it. But the point I'm trying to make here, and there are other Scriptures that go down this road, is the Bible seems to be telling us not everybody's going to get this stuff. So what about all those people that don't get it? What happens to them? What happens to them? God is a God of love. Does He want everybody? Let's see, let's see some Scriptures around that. James 1 and verse 18. James 1 and verse 18. James chapter 1 and verse 18. It says the following in James 1 and verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. Now just think of the implication that we may be a kind of first fruits. Think of people living in an agricultural society that we may be a kind of first fruits. If there are first fruits, folks... There are going to be later fruits. Just keep that in mind. Isaiah 6 and verse 10. Isaiah 6 and verse 10. Isaiah 6 and 10. Notice this going back to what we read in Mark. This is very interesting. Isaiah 6 and 10. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now notice what Isaiah says. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? How long are they not going to get it? Okay? For how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Is he saying that when tribulation comes, when we are now at rock bottom and we see the devastation, that some people are going to get the message? Folks, some people will get the message, and it will take that for them to get the message. You might say, well, Mike, why, why do those people have to only get it that way, and we're getting it this way? 
If you know anything about education or instruction, and this is just my opinion, this is my opinion, when you study education and instruction, what you learn is people don't all learn the same. As physical human beings, we have limitations to how we comprehend. Some people, you can tell them something, you can write it down, they got it. They got it. But that is the limited number. Less people get it that way. Some people, you tell them, and then you show them. And now they start to get it. More people get it that way when you look at education. But you know what? There's a third category that is a larger number when you look at education and learning. You can tell them first, you show them, but then they experience it. Experiential learning is the best type of learning for most people. When people live it, they begin to understand it. What happened in the United States after 9-11? The churches were full. The churches were full that next Sunday for that next month. Look at the statistics. I remember the news stories. Look at the churches. They're full. And then what happens? Slowly, everybody gets back into those other paths. I believe God knows the human mind. And in some way, how people understand things is part of this reason as to why not everyone gets it. There's probably a lot more to it. And again, that's my opinion. Hear that as an opinion, okay? That's not coming from Scripture here. But when he says, when they see the mass destruction, now their ears are going to perk up. Now they're going to start listening if you've been putting something in their ear and letting them know what's coming down the road. Let's look at some more Scripture. Micah 4.2. You guys know this Scripture. I'm not going to turn there for lack of time. But Micah 4.2 says He's going to teach the nations His ways. The nations. Now let me ask you something. That's in the kingdom. If like the Seventh-day Adventists believe that everybody goes to heaven and that the wicked are just going to be destroyed after the thousand years, who are these nations that need to learn His ways? Because I asked that question to my Seventh-day Adventist friend and he didn't have a good answer. Who are these people that need to learn His ways? Because you guys are obviously knowing His ways, right? You're getting it. That's what's going to have you as a first fruit. But who's being taught in this desolate earth that the Adventists believe in, that only Satan is running around on the earth for a thousand years while we're in heaven? So who are the nations, who are the nations that are learning God's ways? You guys know who they are. Joel 2, 28 and 29. Again, I'm not going to turn there because of lack of time. The Spirit will be in all people. You know the Scriptures. The Spirit of God will be moving in all at that time. 
Romans 11, 26 and 27 says all Israel will be saved. Now, you'll find debate among commentators on that verse. Some say that's talking about the nation of Israel as an entity in general, that not every individual Israelite will be saved. Again, I'm not going to get into the details of that right now. I'll leave that to you to do further study. But the point here is this. He says Israel's going to be saved. Right now, most of Judah in the land of Israel today doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. We believe most of Israel was lost to history in some way or another. And unless they come to believe in Jesus Christ, they will remain lost. So obviously, a God of love has to make them aware of Jesus Christ. We know in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, that that's the only name by which you can be saved. The only name by which you can be saved is Jesus Christ. So what about all those Buddhists, Shintoists, Hindus, atheists, agnostics? A God of love has to show them a way. A God of love has to get them a message. And He will. He will get them a message. You can also read in Romans 10. Let's go ahead and turn there. Romans 10, verse 16. Romans 10 and verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Israel wasn't accepting the message that now in the New Testament time, the Gentiles were starting to hear, starting to understand, starting to follow. But does He give up on Israel? Of course not. Of course not. Romans chapter 11, He made men disobedient so He can have mercy on them. Read Romans 11, verse 8, 25, and 32, connected to what we're reading over here in Romans 10. And I will not get into detail there due to my time constraints. I want to go to Ezekiel 37. So when? When does he start to work with Israel? Because most of Israel, folks, throughout history... Never heard of Jesus Christ. Acts 4 says they need to. Ezekiel 37, verse 11. 
Ezekiel 37, 11, the dry bones chapter, one of my favorite chapters. Ezekiel 37, 11. Some people, some commentators spiritualize this away. They spiritualize this away. This is not literal. Don't believe in this literally, they say. That's how you, you wonder, like, how do they not get this? How do they not get a physical resurrection when they read this? Because they spiritualize it away. But what does it say in Ezekiel 37? Let's just look at verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Tie this into what you read in Romans about the Gentiles being grafted in, that Israel is not connected yet or doesn't get it, is kind of out there not understanding. But tie it in now. Put one Scripture upon another. Put these things together. Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them. What is prophecy, folks? Ezekiel had a vision. He had a vision of something. Don't lose the vision. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my Spirit in you. He's going to put His Spirit in them. Because remember this, throughout the Old Testament, most people did not have God's Holy Spirit like you have when you get baptized, which helps you follow that right way. I will put My Spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Notice what He says there. Then you will know. You will know. Those of you that got baptized the other day, why did you get baptized? I hope it's because you know this is the truth. This is real. And so you've got to walk that road. They will know, folks, just like most of us in here know, we know the truth about the last great day. We know that you don't go to heaven when you die. We know that you've got to come and worship on the Sabbath day. We know it. But folks, most of the people in the world don't know that. They don't know it. The Amalekites did not know it. Hindus don't know it. Shintoists don't know it. Buddhists don't know it. That doesn't make them less than us. That doesn't make us better than them. We're just lucky. When you understand what God has given you, that you can be in that first resurrection, you need to hang on to that like nothing else. Don't quit on that. Don't stop it. That's all there is, man. That's all there is. They don't know, folks, 
But like you know now, they will know. Now, we're talking about Israel here, right? But God wants to save everybody, right? Ezekiel 16, 55, if you haven't read the pamphlet by Vance Stinson called The Restoration of Sodom, please read it. It addresses Ezekiel 16, which talks about the resurrection of the Gentiles. But I'm only going to read you one scripture here in chapter 16 of Ezekiel. And get this, there are commentators out there who agree with us on this. There are commentators you will find who say, yes, they do see these scriptures talking about a resurrection of Gentile peoples, a resurrection of Israel. They say that's another way of looking at this, but most of us think of this as spiritual. Okay? No, we see it as literal, physical. It's going to happen. In, in Ezekiel 16.55, notice what it says here. Ezekiel 16.55. You need to read the whole chapter. Get Vance's pamphlet, The Restoration of Sodom, to understand the entire context. And your sisters, Sodom with her daughters, and Samaria with her daughters, will return to what they were before, and you and your daughters will return to what you were before. If you read the whole chapter, you understand the context. This is talking about a resurrection to life of these peoples, these Gentile peoples who didn't understand the truth of God. And what you do is you tie these Scriptures in with what we read in the book of Matthew. Just a couple other Scriptures as I start to wind down here, folks. I don't have the time to address them all. Hopefully, Adrian will get to some of these. But 2 Peter 3.9, I'm not going to turn there. He says he's patient and he wants you to repent. Remember what love is. It is patient. There's a plan that's going through the ages of man that's being worked out because God is a patient God. A thousand years is as a day to God. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says He wants all men to be saved. If He wants us all to be saved, are you telling me the, the devil's going to do better than him in the end? Because that's what some evangelicals will tell you. The devil's, the devil's winning according to them. There's over a billion Chinese. Some of them are Christian or believe in Jesus at least, but most of them don't. There's a billion, there's a billion people in India now. They got all kinds of different beliefs over there. I've been to India. I've seen them take milk and pastries to a 40-foot monkey god and put it in front of this monkey god. I've seen it with my own eyes. Today, in the modern age, it's happening. They're bringing gifts to a monkey god. To an elephant god. These people have been twisted because they haven't been drawn yet. They will be drawn, folks. They will be drawn. Revelation 20 and verse 5. Revelation 20 and verse 5. My, my Adventist friend just could not get this Scripture. 
Revelation 20, verse 5. Reading the first few verses of Revelation 20, you know that the kingdom is now on the earth. Then Revelation 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Clear as, clear as crystal to me. The rest of the dead. Who are the rest of the dead? The rest of the dead. That's the rest of the dead. And they will be judged out of the books, it says in verse 11 through 13. Now what books are they judged out of? What book are you judged out of? We won't get into all the details of that right now because my time is limited. But I want to turn back to Matthew for a moment. We went over 1 Peter 4.17 a little last night. It's important to look at the context of that. Read the whole chapter to get that context that Murray was talking about. But I want to go to Matthew for a couple scriptures. The rest of the dead come to life. You've got to put this together like a little puzzle. The rest of the dead come to life. Revelation doesn't give us all the details. But the rest of the dead come to life. Matthew 10.15 Think about what we were reading about with Sodom over there in Ezekiel. Put these Scriptures together. Send me an email. We can talk more. But Matthew 10, verse 15. Matthew 10, 15. I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Speaking of this town that wasn't listening to the message at that time. Sodom and Gomorrah, they were some... Some bad folks. They're doing some nasty things there. Kind of like the Amalekites, right? But they're going to... It's going to be more bearable for them in this day of judgment. Now, people think day of judgment, and we think the day of judgment. That the judge is going to render a verdict right here and now. This is the day of judgment. But you guys know that when we say day in the Bible, the day of the Lord... The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period. The day of judgment is not a 24-hour period, folks. And that's another topic we can get into. But it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom on that day. Adrian may go to some of these other Scriptures I don't have time to go to. Matthew 11. What Mr. T Mr. Uh, the, 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 the professor I was talking about earlier, when he was referring to Various levels of hell in Matthew 11, 20-24. It's not various layers of hell where people are burning. It has to do with that last great day when people come up in a resurrection to life. And it's going to be more tolerable for some because this will be the first time they had any inkling into what the truth of God is. Not as tolerable for others because... It's hard for people to admit they're wrong. But I want to finish up with one very interesting bit of Scripture in relation to all of this. In John chapter 6. 
Because you'll find there's various ideas about this in John 6 when you read some commentaries. But notice what it says in John 6, verses 39 through 45. John 6, beginning in verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Now he's saying, I will lose none. But if you have a choice, folks, if you have a choice, you have a choice. You get my drift. If you have a choice, then you have a choice. Jesus isn't going to lose none. Because He's going to give everyone the opportunity. He's not responsible. It comes down to a choice that you have to make, and many of us have made, and hopefully we continue to follow it. But He will lose none, it says, that I shall lose none of all that He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Now, is that last day... The last day we're talking about today? Or is it just the last day in a general sense? You'll find various ideas on that. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him... So we got to do something. we got to believe in Him. we got to believe in Him. And you know what all that entails. we got to believe in Him and believes in Him, shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. At this the Jews began to grumble about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can He now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Which last day are we talking about? Now here's the the key to it. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. It's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Folks, think of all those prophecies about God's Spirit being poured out, about all coming to learn God's way. Those are kingdom prophecies. They will all be taught by God. What prophets is he referring to here? The Bible provides you answers to that. If you look this up and study this, there are scriptures that are provided by the scholars on what prophets... John is referring to here. One of them is Isaiah 54.13. Isaiah 54.13. Isaiah 54.13. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. 
Definitely kingdom prophecy, folks. All your sons will be taught by the Lord. He wants to save all, right? Notice Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. Another reference to what we're reading here in John. Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. Jeremiah 31 and 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put My law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be My people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know Me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness. Amalekites, Sodom and Gomorrah, whoever they are, and will remember their sins no more. Folks, the context here, this last day, I believe when you connect it to the other Scriptures of Revelation 20, of Matthew 10, 11, and 12, of the various people coming up in a judgment period, and you connect it to the various prophecies, it's obvious to me and I hope to you that in this period we call the last great day, these people will have the gift that you now have to follow God and change their minds. Interestingly enough, as you look at this chapter, John, John chapter 6, and you read what he's saying here in John 6, what comes right after John chapter 6 in your Bible is John chapter 7, where Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he mentions the last great day within his teaching there during the Feast of Tabernacles. I just find it interesting that John 6 flows right into John chapter 7. Now, I want to leave you with one final scripture, something that you don't often hear on the last great day, but I'm just going to throw it in here. It's in John 4 and verse 7. When we think about people who don't understand the truth as we do, when we think about people maybe who go to church on Sunday, who have different beliefs, people like Norman Giesler, who I believe is, is intentional and truthful about what he believes is the truth. I want to read something to you here in, Luke, in uh, John chapter 4 and verse 7. Just something to think about in Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. And remember this about Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't believe in the prophetic books of the Bible. The Samaritans only believed in the Pentateuch. They only believed that the first five books were God's Word. Now at least, at least the Sunday keepers, many of them, do believe in the same Bible. You get what I'm saying here? The Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They felt that's only God's true Word. They didn't believe in the prophets. 
They believed in worshiping somewhere else than the Jews. They had different beliefs than the Jews. That's why the Jews had animosity towards them. That's why the Jews judged them at times. You get my drift here? That's a, that was an interesting Bible study last night, Murray, now that I think about it, okay? So let's look at this interaction with the Samaritan woman, the woman who really didn't understand the truth correctly. Let's be honest, she didn't. Look at the interaction here. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Living water. The symbol of His Spirit. The symbol of His truth. Flowing onto people on that last great day. There's symbol of the last great day here. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can I get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? They believed in Jacob. They had some of the truth. Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. She wants it. There's people in Sunday churches who want it. There's Buddhists who want it. They're, they're looking for something. There's Muslims who want it. They're seizing upon Islam thinking that's it. Hey, it was the final revelation, right? Hey, this is the, the latest. Muhammad had the latest information. People have been deceived into believing. Why not go with the latest information if somebody's not drawing you? If you're just working with your own mind and you've got a devil deceiving you in the world. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and, and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right. When you say you have no husband, then he tells her her history, and she's like, whoa, who are you? Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You guys have heard that battle before. Calendar, Passover, you know, I'm not going to get into that. Verse 21, listen to what he says now. Jesus declared, believe me, woman. He's talking to this woman. He's talking to this Samaritan woman. I want you to get that point. He's talking to us too, but he's talking to the Samaritan woman. And what does he say to her? Start coming to Jerusalem to worship? Does he say to her, you better, you better believe in the prophetic books? No, look what he says. Believe me, woman, a time is coming 
when you will worship the fa- when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. So he admitted they didn't have it right. The Samaritans did not have it right. There is a right and wrong. I don't have all the answers. But there is a right and wrong. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jews had some things right. They believed in the whole Old Testament. That was truth too. And Jesus knew it. So He's not... He's not playing games with her. He's saying, you know, that the Jews have this information that you don't have, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, the true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The point I want to make here is that he's talking to a woman who doesn't have all the right doctrine, doesn't understand it all correctly, but he doesn't exclude her. He doesn't exclude her from the possibility of being there to worship in that end time when everyone, the true worshipers, will be there to worship the true God. So ladies and gentlemen, as I leave you tomorrow, go back and understand you need to be a true worshiper. You need to understand to the best of your ability what God's truth is. But you also need to have an open heart to those who have not yet been drawn and will be there with us. could join me on stage, please. While they're doing that, I'll just take a moment to thank Pastor Mike for joining us. We certainly have enjoyed you. Appreciate. It feels like he's been here the entire week. And I certainly appreciate your passion and your treatment of the scriptures and your fellowship. So thank you very much. Brethren, please take your hymnals, and uh, Pastor Mike spoke about knowing who we believe in. Let's uh, sing for our first of the closing hymns. Thanks. Page number 56, I Know Whom I Have Believed. Page number 56.
last chance to sing together this morning is on page number 138, 138 with Jesus Saves. Up to this, we'll be led in the closing prayer by Brother Zion Hezekiah from the Toronto Congregation. I'll also ask you, Brother Zion, if you could ask the blessing on the meal. And also, a lot of hands went up, so there'll be quite a few leaving us, if you could ask blessing on their travel as well. Page number 138, Jesus Saves. thank you for who you are and for all that you have done. As a community of believers here, unified, we sincerely thank you, Heavenly Father, from the bottom of our hearts for everything and for all that was accomplished during this Leamington 2014 Feast of Tabernacles. We thank you for the wonderful spirit-led messages. We thank you for the activities. We thank you for the wonderful fellowship opportunities that we were afforded. We thank you for the, the relationships, the new relationships that were established. We thank you for the existing relationships, Father God, that were strengthened. We just thank you once again, Father, for everything. It was truly a wonderful feast, and your presence was definitely in it. As we shortly, soon, will be heading back into the world, we ask, Father God, that you will prepare us, Father God, for what will be in store for the challenges that we will inevitably face. We ask, Father God, for safe travel for those that 
are, will be departing early, that you will bless them and your heavenly angels will guide them and protect them. But as we do return, Father God, back into our local communities, we do ask once again that you will bless us, Father God, and help us to take everything that we learned from this feast, that it will have indeed been a life-changing feast. We pray that you'll help us individually to, to draw closer to you as our Heavenly Father through, through prayer, through fasting, through feasting on your word. We ask that you'll help us to draw even closer to each other, Father God, showing the fruits of love and patience and forbearing and just taking the time, the opportunities to get to know each other even deeper and to strengthen each other, Father God, in the word. We just once again thank you, Father, for everything that was accomplished. We ask that you be with us and you continue to bless us and strengthen us as we depart from here, Father God, uh, at this time, as we close this morning service. We ask your blessing on the meal that we partake. We ask that you bless the hands that prepared the meal. And I'd just like to ask, Father, that as we all depart from here, whether it's today or tomorrow morning, we do thank you, Father God, despite the inconveniences that some of us experienced here uh, in this hotel due to the um, renovation, the construction. We were so very blessed, Father God, with wonderful customer service, just wonderful loving service from the staff at this facility. And I pray, Father God, that each of us, as we do depart, you will inspire us to show our true appreciation for the staff, Father God, and just the service that they gave us and making us feel comfortable here in our temporary dwellings. Uh, this time, Father God, we just leave everything in your hands. We once again ask your blessing on the meal and once again ask your blessing on those that will be traveling and bring us back safely. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.